This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. How do we live an authentic life? I'm Sean Elling, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I ask myself a version of this question all the time. Like everyone else, I want to be as authentic as I can be. The problem is that authenticity is a big, fuzzy word and the sort of thing you hear in self-helpy TED Talks about how to be your true self. To be ourselves, to confidently be ourselves, and to dream the dreams that come with that. Be your most authentic self. Always follow my inner instincts. And be myself. I don't find that stuff very useful. I never have. But the instinct to live a more authentic life, to choose our values and live them honestly, that's important and worth thinking through. So I was delighted to come across a new book called How to Be Authentic by the philosopher and writer Sky Cleary. What I love about this book is that it's really a study of existentialism and its practical significance today. Existentialism was a school of thought that arose in post-war Europe, and it emphasized human freedom and our responsibility to create ourselves every day through the choices we make. Cleary wrestles with this question of authenticity through the eyes of Simone de Beauvoir, one of the great 20th century philosophers and a remarkable woman who was very much ahead of her time. And in the book, Cleary uses her own life and relationships to explore how to put Beauvoir's ideas into practice. I invited Cleary onto the show to talk about Beauvoir's philosophy of freedom and authenticity and how it can help us navigate the challenges of love and marriage and parenthood without sacrificing all the things that make life purposeful in the first place. Sky Cleary, welcome to the show. Sean, thank you for having me. Authenticity is such a loaded, ambiguous term, and you seem to think we're confused about what it means or what it ought to mean. So I want to just start there. What does it mean for you to be authentic? Becoming authentic for Simone de Beauvoir is creating your own essence. So 
often we hear authenticity as you know a process of finding yourself and and being yourself whereas this perspective is about not not finding yourself because there is no fixed essence or or fixed blueprint within yourself that you need to uncover but rather authenticity is a process of creating yourself so it's about exercising your freedom and understanding what you can and can't choose and looking for where you might be able to push back against your choices and shaping your existence. And what's important also here is the notion of authenticity being a process. So it's a continuous process of, of self-creation and, and self-renewal. All right, let's be real here. Most people are faking this, right? You think it's actually quite rare to confront someone or meet someone who's truly living an authentic life in that way. Well, how do we know that really? Like you can't know whether someone is creating themselves in authentic ways. Partly it's an individual process of reflecting on the choices we're making and assessing the pressures around us and understanding if these choices that we're making are truly a result of our free choice. But also that's really hard to judge whether someone else is doing that. But you're right, there is a lot of kind of superficial notions of, of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a buzzword like leadership or or synergy. Yeah. And you know, one of the reasons I started to look into this was this mantra, just be yourself. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? What is your true self? You know, how do you find it? What does it even look like? And should you be yourself? So authenticity is definitely a sort of an introspective process, but also an extrospective process of of engaging in the world. You think of authenticity as a poetic quest, to use the, the phrase from your book. That's a very existentialist idea that we don't discover ourselves, we make ourselves. Why do you think it's so important to remember that our identity isn't fixed, that we're always in this state of becoming? So the core of existential philosophy is that existence precedes essence. So the idea there is that we exist first, we're thrown into the world, and then we create who we become. And so authenticity is what happens when we are able to actively kind of seize our freedom. We're always becoming, we're always growing, we're always stretching beyond the facts of our existence. And wanting to do that is what makes us human. When we talk about a painting, it's like, okay, there's a fixed thing, like a a static object that we can refer to. But when it comes to humans, we're not like a painting because we're always growing and, and becoming more than we are. We're the sum of our past actions. We are also the choices that we're making in the present. And we're also our intentions and goals, where we are, how we stretch ourselves into the future. Well, what does it look like when we refuse to make ourselves in that way? When we run away from our responsibility to choose who and what we are? I mean, is that what someone like Beauvoir and other existentialists would call living in bad faith? where we just kind of step into roles that have been decided for us? 
and we just embrace them as though they're our own in order to not have to take on this burden of really deciding for ourselves who we are. Because that's really scary, I think, for a lot of people. That's a tall order. It is scary, but it's also exciting and exhilarating. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you're absolutely right about, you know, not kind of leaning into authenticity and seizing our freedom. That is an escape from being a self-determining subject. It is bad faith, which is pretty much the same as inauthenticity. And the risk is that if we're not exercising our freedom, that we turn into passive objects that you know, just going with the flow, where being pushed around by society or pushed around by what everyone else wants for us. And Beauvoir's like, to be human is to stretch beyond that given, is to transcend beyond the facts of our lives. Is there an obvious example for you of someone living in bad faith? I mean, I'm thinking of the famous example from Sartre, where he's, he's talking about the waiter. Right? He's like sitting in a cafe, observing a waiter, and he notices that this guy is performing this role. He's speaking and behaving and engaging in the way he thinks he's supposed to. He's filling a role. He's performing a role. And in that sense, it's a kind of bad faith. Is there some other example that comes to mind for you of just someone demonstrating this kind of bad faith or someone running away from... <laughs> this imperative to be authentic? Yeah, I mean, lots of examples. I mean, I'm hesitant to put myself out there, but I do do that in the book. Do it. (laughs) I'll do it too. Don't worry. uh, And in fact, this anecdote is really one of the reasons that kind of drew me to existentialism and the exploring authenticity. Mm -hmm. I was feeling a lot of pressure from society to be a good girlfriend, a good daughter, a good employee. And I was doing all the things that I thought I was supposed to do, doing all the things that I thought was supposed to make me a good, successful person. But I was miserable. And I discovered existential philosophy, especially Simone de Beauvoir, and realized that, wow, okay, I'm not reflecting on my choices. I'm not seizing my freedom to create the sort of person that I want to become. So I was in bad faith and that bad faith was was a function of ignorance. And what I also loved about Simone de Beauvoir's philosophy was that she acknowledged that oppression exists, that there are structures that stop people from pursuing authenticity and it's important to acknowledge them. So we can't just say, oh, if someone's not exercising their freedom, then that's bad. And no, we need to look at their situation, look at the context that they're operating in. In the book, you talk a lot about how we flee our freedom often by throwing ourselves into these archetypal roles. And you're getting at that here, right? Mother, father, husband, wife, employee. And I think I understand the deeper point one can be a mother or a father and still live an authentic life. But what happens is we slide into these roles and adopt a model given to us by our culture or our society. But I guess I wonder, what else are we supposed to do? How do we embrace our freedom and not fall into these pre-programmed roles? I think we probably need models. We probably need guidance. We probably need blueprints, expecting 
people to truly fashion themselves, maybe asking too much, even if that's a noble aspiration. What do you think? One of the things that's really important about authenticity is holding ourselves in question and thinking about are you just sliding along rails? Are you just blindly plodding through life, fulfilling those roles? And it absolutely is difficult to push back. And you know what? Beauvoir also acknowledged that, you know, a lot of people do find fulfillment in certain roles, like of, of mother, wife, husband. Yeah. But if you're only defining yourself as a wife, as an attachment to maybe someone else and not acknowledging your freedom to change in the future, your freedom to pursue your own goals. If you're only pursuing goals that everybody else is telling you to pursue, then that's possibly an indicator of bad faith. Now, bringing myself back into this, you know, I did get married. I did have a child. And Beauvoir actually thought that there were authentic possibilities for doing those things as long as you live a diversified life and don't like subsume yourself into those roles and allow these kind of ideals to dictate what you should be doing. The most interesting parts of Cleary's book are about how our desire for freedom collides with the demands of love and relationships. That's coming up next. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Beauvoir is probably best known as the first philosopher to mainstream this distinction, or really unpack this distinction between sex and gender. 
Why did she think that distinction mattered? And what did it have to do with her notions of freedom and authenticity? Yeah, so what's interesting is that technically Beauvoir didn't use the word gender in the second sex, but what you're talking about is her key idea that one isn't born, but rather becomes a woman. Yeah. And how this is usually taken to mean is that sex is biological, but gender, for lack of a better word, or becoming a woman is socially and culturally constructed. And the issue there is that social pressures to become a socially acceptable version of a woman or socially acceptable version of a man, how that usually manifests is what we're taught. So becoming a woman or becoming a man isn't a result of our free choices, but often it's about doing what we're told, doing what's expected of us, doing what's rewarded, not doing what's punished. For example, girls are often rewarded for being pretty and obedient, whereas boys are expected to be strong and assertive. And often we internalize those strict ways of being. And the problem is that these sort of strict ways of being curb our freedom and prevent us from expressing ourselves in authentic ways. Can we be authentic while still performing our inherited gender roles in the way you're describing? Or did Beauvoir believe, do you believe, that authentic freedom demands we throw off these conventions? Well, Beauvoir was interested in getting rid of all oppression. So if your performance of gender is a result of being afraid to express yourself authentically, then that's a problem. And Beauvoir acknowledged those pressures and she thought that, you know, it's really hard to judge the choices that people make and we shouldn't judge the choices people make. But her ideal was that everybody would be a pure, transparent freedom and we'd all be able to stretch ourselves into the future. I mean, this is utopian, but, you know, her project was getting rid of domination and oppression so that we do have more flexibility about expressing ourselves. Why did Beauvoir think, and now I'm quoting you here, that being in love for a woman always risked tipping into a state of fear, pressure, and obligation? So she was writing in The Second Sex in the 1940s, and so... I mean, back then, things were different. There were fewer women in the workforce. Women had fewer rights than they do now. In in some realms, women weren't allowed to establish credit. They weren't allowed to own property. There was no such thing as no-fault divorce yet. And so Beauvoir saw these factors as pushing women into the kind of romantic trajectory of falling in love, finding the one, getting married, and living happily ever after. Now, the problem with love is that she saw love as a means to stability, love as a means to marriage where women would be financially secure. And so in doing that, we're not appreciating love in itself. Love is a means to another end. And she imagined authentic love should be founded on the reciprocal recognition of two freedoms respecting one another as individuals, acknowledging that each person has their own goals, and 
celebrating love as something that doesn't necessarily have to lead to financial stability. So she wanted to free love from these sort of confines. And to do that, she thought that men and women needed to be free to choose who they fall in love with and free to live the romantic relationship in ways that they choose. Well, what did she think we owe our lovers? Did she think we owe them anything? We owe our lovers respect. We owe our lovers intersubjectivity, which is a term that she used to describe that we acknowledge that we're subjects for ourselves and other people are objects to us, but also other people are subjects in themselves and we're objects to them. And what this means is that we need to acknowledge that other people's lives are as real and rich as mine and that their choices matter. And that intersubjectivity, that's not just what we owe lovers, but what we owe everyone. That's the key to ethical relationships for Beauvoir. And that's what love is also based on. There's this question of love and sacrifice that I kept thinking about reading the book and I really wanted to dig into a little bit here. To love someone, to truly love someone, I think, is to surrender some part of yourself, to care as much about another person as you care about yourself. And maybe you think that's wrong, but how might that conflict with this desire to live an authentically free life? Does it conflict? So I'm interested in this word you used, surrender. There is this idea that in order to love someone, you need to give something up of yourself. Mm. And I think that's not where Beauvoir's coming from, you know, and this myth of a soulmate where you're lacking in something and you find your other half and together you're fulfilled. You know, I blame Plato and Symposium for that. <laughs> Aristophanes, huh? <laughs> yes, exactly. And he was drunk at the time. So mm-hmm. anyway, Beauvoir was like, no, love's not like that because it's not like we can be completed. And you got to be really careful if you're surrendering yourself. If what you mean by surrender is being vulnerable, then absolutely. Being vulnerable, being open to another, taking a risk with another person, then absolutely that's vital. But if it's like compromising yourself or letting go of parts of your existence or your being that are important to you, then that's where it edges into problematic territory. I think we've all experienced that probably on both sides of it, but we tend to impose our own expectations on our lovers. And that is a failure to recognize their freedom and their authenticity. But that is one problem that you run into with relationships is that they so often become a desire to possess another person and really to control them, not for their sake, but for our sake, because of the role they play in our own identity and our own life. And when that happens, you get jealousy, you get resentment. And that on some level has to lead to a clash of freedoms. So Beauvoir says love is renunciation of all possession and all confusion. 
So the perspective you're sharing sounds to me a lot like Jean-Paul Sartre's perspective, which is that we're always caught in this vicious cycle of domination and possession and submission, and we're always trying to merge with another person. And for Beauvoir, she says that's one of the projects of authentic loving is to overcome that desire to control the other person to challenge our impulses towards jealousy. And she thought that this problem was wanting to become whole with the other or become one. And she's like, no, what we need to do for loving authentically is to acknowledge the other in their otherness, to acknowledge the alterity and to find joy in the difference between us. It's a beautiful idea. I think it gets hard in practice. And Beauvoir, as you write about, she had this, I guess, kind of weird relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre, the, you know, the famous French philosopher who just mentioned, you know, and where the two of them agreed to be each other's main lover, but they weren't monogamous. They hooked up with other people, but they were always kind of committed to kind of staying in each other's orbit. It was like a non-marriage marriage or what we would call today, I guess, an open relationship. Did that work out for her? <laughs> Did she feel free in that or did that become complicated? She always insisted that the relationship was freely chosen, but it doesn't mean it was without its challenges. They agreed to be primary to one another, but they would have contingent or secondary lovers. And a lot of those other lovers were hurt through their relationship. Beauvoir acknowledged that they hurt people and felt remorse in a way that I'm not sure Sartre did. And I think we need to also look at how they lived their relationship. So they never lived together. They gave each other a lot of space. They had this relationship of intense companionship and intimacy, but also giving each other their freedom. And, you know, they were intimate for their entire lives. And they're even buried together in Paris's Montparnasse Cemetery. Something that you write in the book you say marriage is a situation that necessarily creates a tension between being for others and being for oneself. But becoming authentic calls for a balance between them both. But there's no easy way to live in that tension. There will be moments where something has to give. Like sometimes it really is zero sum. Or am I just wrong about that? You're not wrong. It is absolutely always attention. And there's always anxiety inherent in relationships. And yeah, sure. Sometimes we think about authenticity as, oh, it's just, it's being for myself. Whereas Beauvoir was like, no, it's our coexistence with other people means that we're always in relationship with others, unless you go off and be a hermit, but then you're in relationship with nature and the wild. But Mm -hmm. to live in society is to have to navigate this tension constantly, day in, day out, of pursuing our projects and our goals and bumping into other people who are trying to do the same as well. And you're right, you know, marriage is the culmination of a really intense kind of 
tension between being for yourself and being for others. And Beauvoir's concern was that, yeah, in marriage, quite often because there's such a big tension, often it's the woman who slides into being for others and it's the man who slides into being for himself. And so women often take that secondary position. One of her quotes is, it is said marriage diminishes man. It is often true but it almost always destroys a woman because marriage is a very old institution and there are so many very strong roles that we all fall into, that we slide into. And in fact, Beauvoir was pretty much against marriage, you know, why she didn't marry herself. And so she said she thought marriage is the biggest trap of all because it was, you know, a structure sort of created by men for men and encouraged women to kind of submit. I wonder what you think she would have said about marriage today. So she's writing in the middle of the 20th century in France. You know, the world is very different today, certainly still flawed in a bazillion different ways, but it is different. And, you know, I mean, there's even a character in one of her plays that says that, you know, quote, all commitment is a prison. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's your view. I want to be careful to not conflate what Beauvoir thought with what you think, but that seems nuts to me, or certainly seems heavy-handed. I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think that all commitment is a prison? I do not. I do not think that all commitment is a prison. We're defined by our commitments. Mm. We're defined by how we launch ourselves into the world. And, you know, although Beauvoir was extremely skeptical of marriage, as you point out, she I mean, in the second sex, she does acknowledge possibilities for authentic marriage. And she says the ideal would be that each human being, perfectly self-sufficient, be attached to another by the free consent of their love alone. So what she's saying is that, sure, you can enter into unions as long as it's between free and consenting adults and acknowledge the ambiguity of a relationship, but not fall back so hard into the traditional ideas of marriage where women are sort of pushed to do most of the housework and men take on the career and women take a back seat when children arrive. And she thought that marriage was so heavy with this baggage of tradition that there wasn't a lot of hope for it, but it doesn't mean she said, oh, it could never be authentic. Do you think it's still loaded down in those same ways? Or do you think her analysis would be fundamentally different if she were to make it today? I I think things are changing. And I mean, it's easier to get divorced. It's like we have no-fault divorce now. I mean, it's still easier to get married than it is to get divorced. But I still find myself sometimes sliding into, you know, traditional roles and I catch myself and it's a struggle and it takes a lot of reflecting and it takes a lot of talking with my partner and teaching my son that, you know, it's not my job to clean up after him. It's not my job to do all his laundry. It's, and this is where, what becomes important is what sort of role model are we setting for our children and are we reinforcing these gender stereotypes? So yeah, I think it's a lot better. And especially since more women are working now and women are accessing better careers, even though There's still a dearth of women in leadership, in politics and organizations, but, you know, there are some improvements for sure. You know, you mentioned becoming a parent now. I'm a new parent. I have a a son that just turned three years old. 
about a month ago. And in the book, you talk about the experience of having a child and becoming a parent. I certainly have my thoughts on this. Do you think the demands of parenting collide with the demands or conflict with the demands of living an authentic and free life? It doesn't have to conflict, but often having children does conflict. Having children is such an all-encompassing endeavor. And in fact, in The Second Sex, in Beauvoir's chapter on motherhood, she spends the first 10 pages defending contraception and abortion because she thought, you know, the choice to bring a new human into the world, it's a huge decision and it's a huge commitment. And to be forced into that against your will is a travesty against humanity. And she realized that often child rearing often still falls to the mother. Yeah. And we're seeing this in the statistics that you know women are still doing the bulk of childcare and housework. Okay, after one last break. We talk about how Beauvoir's philosophy influenced her own friendships and what we can learn from that. Stick with us. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. That guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Something you say in the book and something you gestured at in this conversation is that romantic love is authentic when it is based on this appreciation for intersubjectivity or the intersubjectivity of friendship is the way you put it in the book. What does that really mean? So there was a book that came out just recently called The Inseparables. It was Simone de Beauvoir's novel that she didn't publish during her lifetime. She wrote about this friendship with her best childhood friend, Zaza Lecoin. Yeah. And it's really a story of authentic friendship and creating an intersubjective relation. And Beauvoir was 
really taken with Zaza and they were best friends at school, but also Zaza had other commitments. And Simone de Beauvoir really was struggling with, you know, this friendship isn't equal. Like it's not equal in terms of the feelings people are putting into it. And what she decided was that authentic friendship has to be based on feelings that are free. So if Beauvoir started to try and manipulate Zaza or to seduce her into having a more in-depth relationship, then she would have kind of disrupted this into subjectivity. But Beauvoir respected Zaza's way of being in the world and Zaza respected Beauvoir's way of being in the world and they created this uh, intersubjective relationship where they shared really intimate secrets. And for example, Zaza confided in Beauvoir that she'd sliced her foot open with an axe to get out of obligations and would mix white wine with her coffee in the morning just to get through the day. So this was a really intimate kind of friendship and one that lasted 12 years until Zaza died. And Beauvoir credits this relationship with inspiring her philosophy of friendship and seeing authentic friendship as respect for one another's freedom and being vulnerable with one another and sharing confidences, but also having that really a friendship based on respect. I mean, this is something I do love about Beauvoir. I mean, listeners of the show will know I have a deep affection for Camus. I wrote my dissertation on Camus and I've done a couple episodes about Camus on this very show. And I think Camus was a better artist than Beauvoir, but I think Beauvoir was a better philosopher than Camus. But they both share, I think, the same interest. I mean, Camus always rejected the existentialist label, but everybody kind of lumps him under it anyway and with some good justifications. But one thing they both share, and this really comes through in your final chapter on rebellion, which is really about politics and, and the responsibilities we have to engage, is they both really thought seriously about what we owe other people. And they both believe that to choose life, to value your own freedom is at the same time to value everyone else's. That entails commitments and responsibilities, not just to yourself, but to other people. And living in this tension where you're trying to pursue your own individual projects and be authentic to yourself, but you're also embedded in this world where you are dependent on other people, other people are dependent on you, and you have responsibilities that extend outside of yourself. It's just really hard. It's really hard. And a word that Beauvoir used a lot was ambiguity. And I think that's right. We are living in this tension where we're trying to be true to ourselves, but we're also trying to be faithful to other human beings. And there's no blueprint for that. It's just, well, you have to get up every day and, and decide and act as best you can. And sometimes you'll choose wisely and sometimes you'll choose poorly, but you can get up the next day and, <laughs> and do it again. Yeah. And a full Beauvoir failure is a fact of life. But that's not an excuse not to act, not to engage. Yeah. And you know, she was of the opinion that we all make mistakes, but really there's no mistake big enough that you can't get up the next day and change and take your life into a new direction and accept your responsibilities. But you're right, you, you know, her concern with rebellion was, I think, as deep as Albert Camus. And you know, she was really concerned with the structures that we live in. And she said, we must put a brake on the machinery of power rather than go on oiling its wheels. 
So if we're just going along with the flow, doing what we're supposed to do, maintaining the status quo in the midst of oppression and injustices, then that's on us. We're escaping our responsibility for shaping the conditions of our lives. She says justice can never be created with injustice. And so it's all of our responsibilities to push back against you know, atrocities in the world. Well, that leads me to this relationship between authenticity and, and happiness, our desire for individual happiness and our responsibility to the people around us. If we're trying to live an authentic life, is happiness the right goal? It seems to me that if we take happiness as the primary aim, then we're likely to give ourselves over to diversions and cheap pleasures. And I guess I wouldn't say that that makes an authentic life impossible, but I would say that it undermines it. Yes, definitely. I don't think happiness is something we can pursue directly, and either did Beauvoir. And this is another thing she shares in common with Camus was, you know, the search for happiness. You know, most of her writing does focus on freedom, but there's this theme of happiness that keeps coming back. And she says in her memoirs, you know, she had always been concerned with being happy, but she discovered that we're not like empty vessels that can be filled with, oh, the next app or the next, you know, new technology is is going to fulfill us and then we'll be happy. Rather, she saw happiness as a kind of flourishing that comes from living in harmony with the world and is sort of a side effect of being authentic, a side effect of transcending and pursuing goals that we choose. But of course, as you rightly mentioned, you know, harmony is never a given. Harmony is always a challenge. And how do we create harmony? And this is a theme that we've been talking about. You know, if we're trying to pursue our goals and other people are trying to do the same, then of course we're going to crash into each other. But Beauvoir says that it's important to embrace that kind of ambiguity, embrace the tension, embrace these sort of crashes, as long as people aren't actively trying to oppress us. And if we can sort of acknowledge these tensions as a part of life, then she's like, that should be a source of joy. It can be, you know, a shift from seeing other people as threats to seeing them as actually the context of our freedom, the context of our goals and a fact of our existence that we can work with or push against. She was of the view, let's try and create friendships and work with one another. Yeah. And you write in the book that for Beauvoir, happiness doesn't fall from heaven. We have to try to construct our own happiness. And what's so interesting about her is that she lived her life as a kind of experiment in this regard. Her life was a practical test of her philosophy. She really lived it or certainly tried to live it. Do you think that she was happy or fulfilled in the end? That's hard for me to judge, but she said, my philosophy must be from life. And she said that very early on. And from her memoirs, there were many happy times in her life, but there are also sad times. And I think what her memoirs show us is that maybe a good life is one that isn't just focused on happiness, but one that recognizes that there are tragedies and sadnesses in life as well. And it's a matter of working through those and authentic happiness, she thought, would come from 
being responsible, taking responsibility and exercising our freedom, but also enabling others to do the same. Well, you issue something of a warning in the book, I think, and it relates to this question of happiness. You say that we shouldn't be too, I'm not quoting you here, but you say that we shouldn't be too dependent on others to define our worth and our value in the world. What happens when we do that? Then we become beholden to other people's views of us. We become pushed around by what other people want for us. And, you know, that's a losing game because other people have their own projects and they have their own goals and there's so many different things they want for themselves. And so we're just, and, you know, I see this on social media, if we're just trying to be beholden to what everybody else wants and get those likes, we're going to be torn in so many different directions. And the thing about social media is that quite often people are trying to present this cohesive image of themselves. But Beauvoir says that what we're doing, okay, not in social media, but if we're trying to present this image of ourselves, then we're forgetting that we're fragmented beings. What happens when we do that, when we become dependent in that way on other people's views of us is we become almost like objects in need of external validation. And you can never be really free or even authentic in that way. And I mean, you write about this in the book and it's something I've experienced in my own life. I guess it's what people would call imposter syndrome. I can only speak for me here, you know, but I, I have this thing where I, I speak and I write and I share my opinions and my ideas and people consume those ideas. And there's a kind of vulnerability in that. And I'm constantly worried about being judged. <laughs> for stupid things I say or things I get wrong or just stepping on myself one way or the other and not being as clever as I want to be or as smart and sharp as I want to be. And, and living that way or fearing that prevents me and, and anyone else who shares that from actually just being comfortable in my own skin, being free to kind of, I don't know, experience life as it is and not be cowed by anxieties about the consequences of that. I don't know. I just feel like that's kind of what you're getting at there. I don't know. You, I only bring this up because you bring it up in the book. And so I don't know. Any thoughts you have on that? I'd love to hear. This was one of the things that Beauvoir was deeply concerned about that, you know, sure, we need others and other people are the context of our existence. And, and we need others. We need them to understand our existence in the world but the problem is that we shouldn't be defining ourselves through the gaze of the other to such an extent that we lose ourselves. And Beauvoir encourages us to be comfortable with our ambiguous existence and be comfortable with the idea that becoming who we are is a creative adventure. Mm. And one of the things that really inspires me about Beauvoir is that she is challenging us to become genuine poets of our lives, where encouraging us to transcend the facts of our existence and to try and, you know, acknowledge how we're engaging with other people, but not to the extent that we forget who we are. And when we can exercise our freedom and, and orient ourselves in authentic ways, then, you know, she thought that we will really get to the truth of what it means for us to be human. Are there any other examples or lessons from Beauvoir's life that come to mind that we can apply today that can be a practical guide for us today in our pursuit of 
of an authentic existence? Well, first of all, be the poet of your own life. Acknowledge that you're a complex, very fragmented being and always have the possibility of changing your life. And one of my favorite quotes from Beauvoir is she says, don't gamble on the future, act now without delay. And I love that urgency she's infusing into life and also challenging us to say, okay, just because we've done something in the past or just because maybe we've got ourselves into some kind of right doesn't mean that we can't push ourselves into new directions. I think the second thing would be to accept responsibility. And that means you know, having a responsibility to become lucid about your life, becoming lucid about the choices you're making and the world you're shaping around you. And Beauvoir says, immobile or inaction, we always weigh upon the earth. Every refusal is a choice. Every silence has a voice. So what she's saying is that no matter what we do, whether we act or don't act, they're both choices. And a third thing would be to focus on building intersubjective relationships and acknowledging that we can only become authentic in collaboration with other people. And other people reflect parts of our being back to us and we learn about our existence through our interactions with them. Yeah, you know, if I could add anything to that and and maybe it connects a little bit to this idea of ambiguity, but something that kept jumping out to me was this notion of not being attached to outcomes, to any fixed outcome, not being attached to any fixed version of yourself, that we are evolving, messy creatures, constantly creating ourselves. And that if you become attached to a story of yourself or a version of yourself, your life will become about defending and protecting that. And you will, you will miss the opportunity to become something else, to grow into something else. And that is a kind of bad faith. That is a kind of inauthentic life that I think everyone would do well to resist. And I think Beauvoir and you in this book do a good job of making that case. I love that. Thank you. The book is How to Be Authentic, Simone de Beauvoir and the Quest for Fulfillment. Sky Cleary, thanks so much for coming in today. What a pleasure. Thank you so much, Sean. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And A.M. Hall is our deputy editorial director. Your feedback really helps. So if you have ideas for future guests or topics or really any thoughts at all, send them to voxconversations at vox.com. And if you liked this episode, please share it with your friends, rate and review. That stuff really helps. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. 